Holy Communion was instituted by our Lord Jesus Christ. And he, of course, took the Old Testament festival of the Passover, that great feast which commemorated the Exodus, and he changed it forever into the Lord's Supper so that the people of the Lord who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ might be identifiable with him in his death for sin and with each other in their fellowship together of salvation. Now, if you take the Old Testament song book or hymn book, which is the Psalter, the Psalms, and you read these Psalms, you will find a wonderful thing about them. The Psalms are the expressions of hearts that are open before God, hearts often in worship, hearts often at prayer, hearts often in offering up great songs. If you had the privilege of creeping up in back of one of the greatest of all of the saints and listening to him as he poured out his heart before God in prayer, you can get something of that feeling which ought to come to you as you stand in awe and in wonder and read these great psalms. During the coronation of Queen Elizabeth, when so much had been put into it, the aftermath of World War II still hung heavy over all of the British Isles. And there at that tremendous occasion, when all of the cities of Great Britain were festive and rejoicing that Elizabeth reigned, Sir Winston Churchill was seated by a man in Westminster Abbey watching the coronation. And this gentleman turned to Sir Winston and said to him, this sort of gives you a feeling of the ages, doesn't it? And Sir Winston Churchill said, it took a thousand years for us to be able to do this. Well, there are more than two and a half millenniums that go back to this great psalm. And when we read this Psalm 27, we see this man offering his heart unto God in a prayer of exultant, exciting faith. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Light and salvation. The Lord has brought to him light for his path through life. And the Lord has brought to him salvation. I said some weeks ago that every sermon deals with sin and salvation, for they all do, whether they are about comfort or whether they are the Lord's Supper or whether it's a baptism or whether it's a recitation of the creed or whether it's the singing of a hymn. Our constant battle in life is a battle against sin and a growth in grace. You know, all of life is made up of these adjustments to come to us. That's why faith and fear always hold us in such tension. If I'm driving my car to Asheville, I must remember that on the road to Asheville, I can't simply hold to the steering wheel rigidly and arrive there. But there must be stops and starts. There must be turns and swerves. I must slow down. I must speed up. I must signal. I must indicate. And life is like this. There are mountaintop experiences and there are valley experiences and there are constant adjustments that come and change is often difficult for us to make. Here this psalmist offers his praise to God whom he describes as my light and my salvation. It is a personal faith, a personal faith in him that he speaks of here. This is what we need to do. We need to grow in our own personal devotion to God and to Jesus Christ and in the work of the Holy Spirit working in our life. 
you will notice that in Hebrew worship, God is always central, not man. The people do not come to church primarily to hear a preacher. They do not come primarily to hear a choir. They do not come primarily to show whatever new clothing they may possess or to enhance their standing in the community. But when they come, they come as an act of worship before Almighty God. If you study the Exodus, which we celebrated from the Christian viewpoint in that feast last Sunday of the Lord's Supper, and if you read the great song of Miriam, it does not exalt about Moses, it does not exalt about Aaron, his advisor, but God is the one who delivers. And this is always the important uh, issue for us to remember in worship, that we have come to worship Almighty God and to praise his holy name. And the psalmist can say, He is my light, he is my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord has brought to him confidence, and the Lord has brought to him strength. Not long ago, I clipped out of a guidepost magazine the amazing account of what happened to a Christian woman one Sunday evening over the city of Dallas. Her husband was a pilot. And one Sunday afternoon, they had gone for a ride in the airplane, and it was a beautiful starlit night. Night had the shadows had come. They wanted to look at the city of Dallas under the lights. And so while they were flying and enjoying it all and talking about the beauty of it, she had just, he had just finished exclaiming to her, I love flying, don't you? And she was saying, yes, how much she loved it. And then all of a sudden, her husband gasped and he clutched at his throat and then he slumped over the the wheel of the plane. He had had a heart attack. She could not fly an airplane. She didn't know what to do, but she reached for the wheel. She knew enough that she had seen him pull back on it and the plane would go up, so she pulled back on it and she got the plane up into the air again. She fumbled with the radio switches and finally she was able to press the right button. She panicked in fear. And then she said, oh, God, help me. And she didn't know even the code word, mayday. She did not know to what to scream out for an emergency signal. And so she began in her tears to cry out, oh, God, help me. Can anyone hear me? Will you please help me? Someone help me. And finally, on the speaker system, the tower at Love Field answered. And the tower said, what has happened? And she said, it's my husband. He has just died. Uh, and I don't know what to do. I don't know how to fly an airplane. The controller in the tower began to say to her to be calm, to hold the plane uh, wheel back to keep the altitude, which she did. She looked down at the maze of lights over the city of Dallas. She didn't know what to do, but she prayed. The people gathered in the control tower prayed. Here was a poor woman up in the skies over Dallas, not knowing whether she would land on an expressway or a freeway or into a crowd of people or what would happen. But the controller began to talk with her. This woman had faith in God. She had faith in the controller who spoke to her. 
At one point, she almost came right into one of the busy expressways, and the controller who was watching her on radar told her to pull up the plane. He told her where the compass was, where to take her heading, and how to fly according to it. Finally, when he got her over the runway at Love Field, all of the traffic was closed. He told her how to push the rudder pedal. He told her how to lower the plane, and she came in on the runway. The plane crashed, but she survived the crash. She had some injuries, but she lived. Later, she said that her fear had given way to faith, that somehow when she cried out to God, she really felt the presence of God, although she was all alone in that airplane. And the voice of one speaking to her, she was able to trust, and she came in. The psalmist could say, the Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, means that the Lord is my fortress. When Martin Luther, when Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, you have often heard me, those of you who are members of this church, describe how Karl Barth said of it, that Luther, who finally became convinced that salvation came by faith in God alone, through Jesus Christ alone, and that his conscience was bound to Scripture alone. And when Luther began to enunciate this to all of the uh, people, through his writing, Karl Barth said that he was like a man walking up a dark spiral stairway in a church who suddenly trips in the darkness and reaches out to catch hold of something and catches the bell rope to the bell tower and it clangs and rings all over a dark city. For the church encrusted in superstition and darkness and fear had no light. And when this man through his faith in God as revealed in Christ through the scriptures began to show people to turn back to God in faith, that rang out the great sound that signaled the reforming of the church, reformed according to the church of God, and it came in response to faith. He was assailed, of course, by evildoers. He was assailed by slander. He had hosts that encamped against him. And what was Luther's response? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark, never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills, prevailing. Though still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe, his craft and power are great, armed with cruel hate. On earth is not his equal. But did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. The prince of darkness had to tremble beneath the man who was armed with such faith in God and such gracious strength from him. Though a host should encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war should rise against me, I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord. Notice the centrality of God, the Lord, that, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Not only was God central in Hebrew worship, 
There was a social aspect to it too. The Hebrews a year a while ago were shaking hands and I said that we want to become friendlier toward each other. We had this joyful anthem. There was a social aspect to worship because we are roped together by faith in God. We are in reality those of us who are born again by the Spirit of God, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, a part of the family of God. Anything less than this is a mockery. It's a hollow sham. But we are to belong to one another in it. We are to feel with one another. We are to have fellowship and understanding of each other in the bonds of Christ Jesus through a common faith in him. This is a part of the family of God. And now this psalmist, not only speaking of this social aspect of worship, but here he speaks thirdly of the inner thing about worship. I will inquire in his temple and behold the beauty of the Lord. The psalmist believed that there was something that would happen at church where the Spirit of God communing with other believers and working on his mind and heart through the correction and the light that the word of God would bring in his heart that would change him. This is the inner worship that no one else can do for you, but which must be done as you submit yourself to the glory of the Lord, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple, how much do you really love Jesus? How much do you really love him? What would your life be like without him? How much do you really love God? How much would your life be without faith in God through Jesus Christ? You see, what he is saying here is that all that he has is bound up in his faith in God. And all that we as Christians have, all that we have is bound up in our faith in God as he is revealed to us in Jesus Christ and as the Holy Spirit works upon our life. You know, for thousands of years, men believed that the earth was the center of the universe. They believed that the earth stood still and all of the, the sun was going around the earth and the stars were all going around the earth, that the earth was the center of the universe. They made computations and charts and graphs, but always their figures came out wrong. They came out wrong. They came out wrong because they did not have a proper understanding that the earth was not the center of the universe. A man by the name of Ponticus, 2,000 years before Copernicus, tried to tell people that the earth was not the center of the universe. He said the sun was, but people laughed at him and called him a stupid old person. And then Copernicus finally was able to reason that the movement which we see is because the earth itself is revolving. And Copernicus taught us that the sun was the center of our solar system. And when we were able to do this, then we could get our proper guidance from the stars and the sun and we can make adjustments. This past summer, I had the happy experience of going down to Columbia in South America on a banana boat. One of my boys went with me. We used to go out each evening, or at least I did on the evenings, I would go up to the, uh, to the place where the helmsman is. And the helmsman would be there, 
and he would be just a, a person, maybe a very limited knowledge. But the first mate would take his sextant and he would go out and take a reading. He would take a certain reading, looking at the horizon, watching the sun, taking readings that would be there, and then he would make his computations, and then he would walk over and erase a blackboard, and then he would put a heading there, a heading you would write in chalk. And all the helmsman had to do was look at that figure that was written there and look down at his compass and fly according to that heading. And we were going in the direction that the skipper of the ship wanted us to go. Well, as long as we do not allow Jesus Christ to be the center of our solar system, the center of our life, all that we graph and chart and figure will be off course and we will end in failure. But when we do make him the center, what a difference it makes. What a difference it makes when that inner worship and that inner devotion springs from a love for him. A while ago I was tying this little gold football on a piece of ribbon and someone teased me. They said, what are you doing going over your beads? <laughs> And I told him I wasn't. You see this little gold football? I won this in 1947. And that little football there hangs a story. I've never been a great athlete. I wanted to be. But I was neither big enough nor fast enough to be a great athlete. I went to a high school where football was a tremendous thing. Many great professional football players came out of that high school. In 1940, in 1941, in 1942, we had great championship ball clubs. I had an older brother who always was affectionately known to the family as Bo. And Bo loved football so much that he used to get up every morning and he would run for long distances to increase his wind power. He had a great devotion to the game. He wanted to make that starting lineup of our football team more than anything else. And in his senior year, when he could have been a star performer, a check of birth certificates reveals that he was past his 18th birthday at the crucial time and that he would not be permitted to play football that year. This was a crushing blow to him. And I remember his eyes swollen red from weeping and the tears that came down his face when he realized that he would be ineligible for varsity playing that year. He was not a big fellow, but he was a fierce competitor. Well, do you know what he did? When football practice came, he showed up at the athletic field. And the coach knew that he was good, and so he used him to run the opposing team's plays in scrimmage. And some afternoons, I used to go down and watch them work out. And when he would hit into that fierce, big, powerful state championship football team line, I remember one occasion when he was knocked completely unconscious. They took his helmet off, revived him. As soon as he came to again and he was ready to go, he was right back on the field again in that dedication. Well, we ended up that year and went into the state finals. And then, of course, in our high school, there were about 1,200 students. In the auditorium, it was a thrilling occasion when athletes were awarded their letter jackets. 
And when these letter jackets were awarded, uh, the student body would be always very enthusiastic. You have to do that if you have a winning team. You've got to have a lot of morale. And we used to greet one another with beat Kilgore, beat Tyler, or beat Dennison, or beat Sherman uh, when we saw each other in the street and when we saw each other in the corridors of the high school. We wore ribbons that said, tear them up. You know how we really went at it. <laughs> uh, we had... Uh, we would go downtown and take over the whole town for a football rally. And that's why all these great players come out of these areas. Well, anyway, came the great day and the letter jackets were awarded. And you've got to know these high school football players. It, it can be 105 degrees outside and they got that football coat on. <laughs> They're so proud of that jacket. They wear it all the time. <laughs> well, uh, there came the day for the awards. And all the awards were given out. And then our coach, who was Raymond Berry Sr., he said there's one person who has probably sacrificed more painfully than any other man on our ball club this year. He added a spark of morale to us because of his dedication, and he made a speech about my brother Bo. And then when he finished, he asked him to come out of the student body. All of the players were up on the stage and to come forward, and he awarded him the coveted letter jacket of our high school Wildcat team. Well, when he did, the student body rose and they applauded and they applauded and the newspapers rolled him up as the unsung hero. Then he was off to the Marine Corps. He was fighting out in the Pacific. He wrote me letters back in those little B-mail letters that used to come in from the Pacific and he told me that he wanted me to play football. He wanted me to do what he couldn't do. I went to the football field and I wanted to play fiercely. Although I was not big and I was not fast, I knew that I could compete if I put my heart into it. And so I did. I wanted to do it for my brother who might be killed any day out in the Marine Corps fighting on Iwo Jima and Saipan and Kenyon. I even selected his jersey number, number 62. I wanted that to be my number because I wanted to make the ball club for him. I didn't have much of a chance. But because of my love for my brother, I was willing to go and work out as strenuously as anyone could. I would be the first person down at the athletic field every day. I would run and stay with it until everyone else had left. The groundskeeper who watered the lawns and I became great friends because I was always hanging around the football field working out. I was not fast, but I could play the whole 48 minutes of a ball game, and I could mix it with it. And by the grace of God and through the effort that I was able to expend that came from a love for my brother, I won this award. Now, the reason that I've said this, and I don't say this to call any attention to myself, but later on I heard a preacher who preached about faith in God and discipleship to Jesus Christ. And the thought occurred to me, if I would let my world revolve around football with such dedication, why wouldn't I love Jesus that much? Why wouldn't I be willing to give myself just that completely to him? When I think of the field of politics and politicians, everything they think and do and say is really calibrated toward that election. Why can't we get people who are Christians in the same way, in the same sense of dedication and loyalty?
This is what real worship is all about. God is central. It is social in our fellowship, but it has an inner meaning as it motivates us to being yielded to God. And, of course, St. Paul. St. Paul speaks of this marvelously when he tells us in that, eighth, in that 12th chapter of Romans that the logical conclusion, after all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, is to present our bodies as living sacrifices to him. Now, that was not simply information that was supposed to be for the first church of Rome around 56 uh, or 7 A.D., but it applies to the Presbyterian Church in Montreat in 1972 to disciples who belong to Jesus Christ. I heard the voice of Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun, and in that light of life I'll walk till traveling days are done. God grant that to each one of us we may be willing to yield ourselves in that kind of worship and devotion to him. Let us stand and be dismissed in prayer. O oh God, our Heavenly Father, help us not only to be able to read the words of the psalmist that the Lord is my light and my salvation, but help us to be able to say from our hearts that he is our own, my own light, my own salvation. Help us to have that trust and faith in him that will so energize us that we may be motivated to yield ourselves more and more in devotion to him. Help us as we know him more and love him more to serve him better so that the world may see reflected from that light which he shines upon us the very light and love of Jesus himself. And Father, if there be any here present who has never yet made that surrender of life to Jesus Christ, Help that person this day to go someplace and quietly say to Jesus Christ, I want to give all of my life to you. I want you to be my sun, my star, my joy, my crown, my light, and my salvation. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father in the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all, both now and forevermore.